Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 48. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to professional wrestling history from 1870 to 1920 when it was almost real. And this is not a solo episode, I am just re-recording the intro for what we thought at the time we were recording was going to be episode 47. As I said in the last podcast, uh, Dangerous Dan has been on the injured reserve for the past couple weeks. After our episode 46 podcast, he went right to the hospital and has uh, enjoyed, or not really enjoyed, his stay for the past couple of weeks. He's been treated great, but who likes being in the hospital? But we are going to be back in the Million Dollar Studio in the next few weeks. But until that time, we're going to have to record the uh, podcast on Skype. So I hope you don't see a big difference in audio quality or uh, the quality of the podcast. And I have to apologize for the one you're getting ready to listen to. Uh, For some reason, my uh, brain was on uh, network delay for this podcast. And I was about 30 seconds behind my mouth, so... Hopefully uh, that doesn't take away too much from the history and the enjoyment of listening. Uh, We're joined, Dan and I are joined by Trey in this podcast, and we're hoping for episode 49 to have uh, Caleb and Trey with us so we can cover some news items, talk over some history, and then do a review that they've probably never seen because Trey and Caleb were not wrestling fans as kids. And uh, I didn't really let him watch it. I didn't like the direction it had gone in. And I was a much bigger MMA fan at the time. So they're really, being martial artists themselves, much more into MMA than they, and they never watched pro wrestling. So it's always good to get their perspective. So with all of that said, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. And we're a little discombobulated this week because we're not in our million dollar studio as usual. Uh, Dangerous Dan is on the injured reserve, so for the next uh, couple weeks, we're going to have to do this on Skype, and as uh, we're learning the new technology and everything, there'll probably be a bug or two, so we hope you'll be forgiving of us when it comes to that, but joining me this week, I have both Dangerous Dan, and then I have my oldest son, Trey, is joining us as well. Hello. And I was going to put him on the spot and get the younger generation's uh, perspective of the whole Vince McMahon scandal. But I thought we'd save that, Dan, until we get both him and Caleb and we could just do it at one time. That sounds that sounds fine. Because, you know, I tend to get grumpy on those episodes anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I did want to give a, a really quick update. By the time you're hearing this, which will be Monday, February 25th, 25th or 26th, I'm losing my days now, but when you hear this on Monday the 26th, it will, uh, all of the books that I intend to put on audiobook should be available on Amazon to listen to. I've got two, yeah, I got two books left. I tell you, I'm really impressed with this virtual voice program mm-hmm. because I originally got the microphone to record the books. I was going to to read them, but 
I like the, these recordings better, and so that's what we're going to go with, at least for the time being. I decided okay. to do the beta program with Amazon. So all of them will be available on Audible and ACX, which is probably the same thing. Okay. And then uh, the other update I had was this year, I think we'll continue with the schedule that we came up with. Okay. But in 2025, I would like to try to put out a weekly podcast. Oh, okay. Which would mean I would only uh, put up a blog post yeah. on uh, months that there was four weeks. If there was five weeks, we just release five podcasts. And I say we, the corporate we, some combination yeah. of us, or I could do solo episodes like I do occasionally. It's getting more popular. People seem to like it. So yeah. I was thinking the, about going in that uh, direction. And I was, I think I told you about this, Dan. I had to turn down two opportunities that I would have really liked to have, but it's just there's so many demands on my time right now, and it'll get even uh, busier once recruitment season starts in May, June timeframe. But uh, St. Louis History Podcast invited me, and I would have loved to get on there and talk about the streetcar strike. Oh, of yeah. 1900. But doing our podcast, it's hard enough for me to get us all together to do that. Right. And then a midshipman uh, reached out to me from the Naval Academy to ask if I'd help him do a history of the judo club there, which was started by Professor Yamashita, who had come to the United States around 1902 he actually was the judo instructor for theodore roosevelt mm -hmm. and i would have loved to have done that too i just unfortunately i don't have the time right now i really wish i had particularly that project i would have really liked to help that young serviceman do the yeah history of the naval academy maybe one day i'll have more time but right now it's just i've got to be realistic about the, the time i have right. to uh Oh, and I guess we should announce, we, we had a discussion that lasted all of about five seconds where we decided that we are much uh, better uh, performers for radio than for television. So we won't be sharing the Skype recordings. We're just going to put up the audio on uh, the podcast feeds. Okay. Because I, I think it's pretty boring anyway just to watch people sit around and talk in a microphone. Right. But again, as I said, it's usually good for like running as background whenever you're playing games or working on something. Right. Yeah. Well, Trey had put it said if we ever wanted to put them up on YouTube, we should just put up like our logo up there. Yeah. And just the put video. the audio file up there. Yeah. Well, you never know. We could do that one of these days if you guys want to. So. Yeah. Because it's know, really not that much of a, a hassle. The only thing that's going to take a while is the individual uploads. Right. But people yeah. run them as background through YouTube. And because YouTube is a lot more open than the podcast uh, platforms, you'll probably get a good chunk of like, you might end up getting a unique audience from that than the, from the podcast. Right. Well, if listeners are interested in that, uh, maybe next fall, I'll take that on. There's no way I'll have the bandwidth to do it in the summertime. I'm sorry. Right. Well, no, I tell you, you know, right now I'm not using that much bandwidth right now. Um, 
And I might be able to, we might be able to swing that in my place. Oh, yeah. We Dan will maybe be able to get into the Million Dollar Studio and make the recordings available for everybody on YouTube, too. That would be pretty cool. That would huh. be very nice. So, what are we going to talk about before we get into some historical wrestling? I, I told you, Dan... Let, let's add this into the update, too, and that way I can separate it from my the main history topic. Oh, yeah, I told here, you that I had made a couple of bloomers on our episode where we were talking about William Muldoon and Clarence Whistler. Uh-huh. Because I've been listening to all these books in the audio, the virtual audio studio where you uh, edit the audio book. Uh-huh. I was listening to the Muldoon book which I wrote in 2014. So I wrote that almost 10 years ago. Yeah. And for a lot of the podcasts, I just go off my memory because I trust it. And usually I don't screw things up too bad. But there was two things. I I left out something that was very important that I had forgotten about. And then uh, when I talked about the Muldoon-Whistler match, I left out a couple of very important things. So let's get those things all straightened out now. When Muldoon defeated Theobald Bauer for the title in 1880, that match at Madison Square Garden drew 4,000 fans. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is a massive crowd for 1880. Yeah, it is. That's like half the city of New York. Yeah, I didn't realize anybody drew more than 3,000 fans until Evan Strangler Lewis. And, I mean, he would draw three to 6,000 in Chicago pretty regularly. Right. that is a huge crowd, but I'm not particularly surprised about that because Muldoon was a very popular New York City police officer and wrestler. So New York, he would probably draw a big crowd. Uh-huh. And I think most people that knew wrestling figured that he was probably going to win because yeah. yeah. whether Bauer wanted to work with him or shoot with him, Muldoon right. could have won either one. So, But the The facts that, and I had, honestly, I had forgotten about this. So in the the matches they had, except for the one match that Muldoon won over Whistler, nobody had scored a fall on anybody until this last match that they had had. Muldoon won the first fall from Whistler, Uh but Whistler won the second fall. And Muldoon never dropped a fall in Greco-Roman wrestling, and I think he was furious about that, and that's wow. why he threw Whistler face first to the stage. Because you're always trying to throw somebody on their back, not their face. Right. And I think that's why he slammed him down face first. He knew he couldn't slam him on his back, so he's like, well, he'll turn out of this. So, uh-huh. But, yeah, that's what caused him to be so mad, is uh, Whistler had actually taken the first fall that I ever remember him dropping in a Greco-Roman match, Whistler got the one fall on him. So it was actually in the third fall that Muldoon injured Whistler. Ah, but okay. It, that did end up repairing their friendship and everything. And ah. he did go to Australia after that, and he did die in Australia, so they never had a chance to really to either wrestle competitively or work vaudeville circuit together again. Uh-huh. Even though I think that's what their plan was. I gotcha. So let us say the record has been set straight. You know, this is okay. very positive. We haven't even taken a shot at anybody so far. 
No, not yet. Oh, that's think that's the longest we've gone. Yeah, uh, but I had the opportunity today. I've not watched the whole thing, but I have watched some of the Elimination Chamber. We're recording this on Saturday, February twenty fourth. Yeah, my days really are screwed up, and so I saw some of the Elimination Chamber, Uh and I mean some. So the first match was the women's elimination chamber match. Uh, and if you haven't seen this, I won't give away the winner. Who is? Do what? Who won it? All right. So Dan wants to know who won it. So if you don't want to know who won the matches, stick your fingers in your ears, whistle, do something until you've actually <laughs> seen the event. But, uh, Becky Lynch won it. Well, I and figured the, that much. Yeah, and the last three competitors were Bianca Belair, oh, Liv Morgan, and Becky Lynch. Liv Morgan? Yes, and Liv Morgan is the one that got the surprise pin on Bianca Belair, and then Becky Lynch pinned Liv Morgan. I, you see, I can't take Liv Morgan seriously as a wrestler she's too it's hard she at her size any. to take her seriously she has, she has no muscular you know aperture and she's just so much smaller than the really the top girls yeah, I in mean, those divisions you know, you know like, like so the other much night, smaller had, well the other night she had a mat a match with tiffany stratton and it looked like you know, a junior girl wrestling a senior prom girl, you know? Right. Tiffany Stratton was the only girl in that match, the only female wrestler that the fans really booed and didn't like. Everybody else, they liked it. Now, I will say something. I've told you before, the, the only thing about Bianca Belair that puts me off is even if she's in a blood feud... She comes out skipping and twirling her ponytail, and she's going to do that no matter what the circumstances. But I'll tell you what, for this pay-per-view, that being the first match and her being the first wrestler to come out doing that really got that crowd up. That crowd was on their feet and cheering, and it really brought them up. So, you know, kudos. I thought that that worked really well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because when she comes out, she usually fires the crowd up. Yeah, so I thought that was smart. So then the second match was Tyler Bate and Pete Dunne. And you know how much I like Pete Dunne. Yeah. Against the Judgment Day of Damian Priest and Finn Balor. Both yeah. great wrestlers. Uh, Damian Priest, uh, they don't put a belt on him at some point. They're out of their mind. Yeah, but, him and McIntyre both. Yeah, um, well... I've got some thoughts about that too. Um, yeah. Based on what I've seen on the Grayson Waller effect, but we'll get there in just a second. That's the last thing I saw. I have not seen the main event, men's elimination chamber, or Rhea versus Nia Jax. Oh, okay. I, I would just about bet the farm that Rhea Ripley had to have won that match. If not, um, they better start drug testing the office. Well, if, if they let they let that sofa be, uh, you know, her, that's one thing. Right. That would be ridiculous. 
and they're in Australia. You, mm-hmm. you shouldn't beat Rhea Ripley in Australia. But anyway, that when they when they came out, I'm like, there's no way on earth that which now Tyler Bate and Pete Dunn are calling themselves the Catch Republic, Catch Wrestling. Cool kind of name. Yeah. I see the same issue for Tyler Bate to Pete Dunn to a little degree, but he kind of with that nasty attitude of his and those facial uh-huh. expressions and that whole bruiser weight gimmick, he gets over it a little bit more than Tyler Bate does. Yeah. As soon as they come out, I'm like, Tyler Bate is way too small. They're going to beat these guys. Yeah. And I figured they would beat Tyler Bate. Who do you think they beat? Pete Dunn. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Finn Balor pin Pete Dunn. I'm like, okay, I don't understand that booking at all. All right. And then what came after that? Because I skipped through a lot of the, the matches. Maybe it was the Grayson Waller effect next, which I yeah. did watch, and I was glad I watched because it was Austin Theory, who the fans were booing the heck out of. He introduces Grayson Waller, who the Australian fans are cheering like he's the second coming because he's from Australia. Yeah. And then uh, you had uh, Seth come out. Fans loved him. Cody came out, most popular babyface in the world is proven here. He's as over there as he is here. The segment ends with uh, Austin Theory interrupting Cody and Seth because Cody challenged The Rock for a one-on-one match at any time. And Seth said, you know with the bloodline, it's not going to be one-on-one. So when you, if you ever get that match with The Rock, know I'll be there to support you. And Seth was not limping around like he has been. And he said his knee is almost healed. And he did some physical stuff with Austin Theory. Yeah. I'm not so sure that it's a given that whoever wins the Elimination Chamber is going to beat Seth. I thought because Seth was going to have to go away and get knee surgery, whoever won the Elimination Chamber is going to be the world champion because they're going to beat Seth so Seth can go away and have his knee surgery. I'm not sure that that's going to happen now. Wow. And I think you got to keep Drew in the main event mix. He would be a natural to be the world champion. But take it out past WrestleMania. If Cody does indeed beat Roman, which yeah. everybody, I think, believes he should. If he does beat Roman, you could still get the Roman versus The Rock at some point after WrestleMania, because Roman could say, until you came along, I was doing fine, blah, blah, blah. Right. Then if, unless they're going to put Roman right into that program with Cody immediately, Cody's going to need an opponent. Yeah. And he and Drew have had some friction. And I still think the ideal person to beat Seth is Gunther. Yeah. But I, I don't know what but the plan is. I think right now. if I was to guess, I would say the plan is still for Drew to beat Seth. But you never know. You never know what WWE is going to do. If they don't have Cody beat Roman this time, I think you're back to the Lex Luger thing in 93 when Vince changed his mind about putting yeah. a belt on him at SummerSlam. 
I, I think that Cody, you know, the, the bloom's going to come off the road for no, for no fault of his own. The bloom is going to come off that rose. Right. Yeah. Trey, did we put you asleep? No, I just like, I have no idea. I'm assuming this is modern WWE or. It, it is. It, it's the pay-per-view or what they're now calling the premium live event that happened the other day. Now, something that you might find interesting, it's starting to get annoying already, though. So yeah. when they first started doing it, it was kind of cool. So you know the company that owns UFC also owns WWE now, and they're a joint group called TKO. Did not know that. Yes, that's it. The Endeavor bought UFC several years ago. They've now bought WWE, and they put them together in the same company called TKO. That's their combat sports company, if you mm-hmm. think of that way. Okay. So you know how at the UFC events, when you see they're talking, they're trying to hype the main event, and you see the champion coming in in the challenger, and they're pulling their luggage, and they've got their trainers and stuff with them. Right. They're starting to do that with WWE now. So at all the events today, we saw all the stars, you know, pulling their luggage like Becky Lynch and uh, Seth Rollins, who are married, coming off the plane together. And then and when they got to the actual event, they had, a, you know, oh, here's uh, Randy Orton arriving at the building today. Here's just like they used to do at UFC. Right. But it's already starting to get annoying because UFC would do that with maybe the main event and the co-main event. They right. didn't say, hey, here's the opening match or the opening bout guy coming in the building today. He was already in the uh, octagon. They weren't showing that. But they're showing like 20 people coming into the building. I'm like, okay, this is getting pretty old pretty quick. You know, yeah. you want to show... The stars coming in, that's fine. But showing 30 people coming into the building, who cares? I was going to say, and the other thing is, if you do it for every single one, nobody cares either. Because it's not, you're doing it as a promo because it is unique in that one situation, like in that one, for that one individual. It's not interesting when you do it 300 different times. Right. Dan, have you ever seen the IT crowd? Yes, of course. And I know Trey has seen it. So you remember the uh, the episode where they the uh, team had just done that computer integration, and Denim had had all of the uh, employees show up, and they were talking about it. And Denim was running around slapping hands with everybody, and he kept slapping Roy across the face every time he'd run around in the. Oh circle. yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's slapping Roy in the head. Yeah. That is what those entrances are starting to feel like when you're watching them. On. <laughs> They're starting to get a little old, and yeah. it's, it feels like you're watching Roy get slapped in the face all the time. With the people. <laughs> oh, here's the soda jerk coming into the building today. Yeah, let's give him a big round of applause, you know. Because I think Denim got all the way down to the janitors when he was doing his rah-rah speech. And that's what yeah. it felt like. <laughs> and here are the people that are going to be serving the concessions today. They're very important, no doubt about it. But I don't think people want to watch them come into the building to start, right. you know. Yeah. Here's our number one popcorn seller. Let's give her a hand. Exactly. And she's, believe me, when you're sitting out there in those ridiculous stands and you're thirsty or you're hungry, uh-huh. those are some of the most important people in the building. 
But did they anyone show up there that day? That day to watch them walk in the building to work. <laughs> Probably looking exhausted and irritated that I'm going to have yeah. to deal with a bunch of rude people all day today. So yeah, that, that that's the visual I thought of this morning when I was watching. You know, thirty people walk <laughs> into the building, and here comes Bless the janitors. You. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> all right. So are we ready for some historical talk, or do we just want to? Wax philosophical all day. Well, it's up to you, sir. I'll say it's your podcast. I'm cool with whatever. I actually thought about the topic today, listening to another podcast that I do want to plug here. And we get no monetary compensation for this. I just enjoy the podcast. And I enjoyed listening to this person. And and that's uh, Brian R. Solomon. Huh? Dan, did I tell you about Brian R. Solomon's tweet a couple weeks ago that uh, just tickled me? I don't think uh-huh. we covered it on the podcast, did we? So I don't Trey, think so. <clears throat> Trey, remind me that uh, the idea for this week came from a, a podcast, but I want to digress to this point for just a second. So okay. Brian R. Solomon has a podcast called Shut Up and Russell. Yeah, the Shut Up and Russell podcast. Uh-huh. I sometimes get that one confused with Stick to Wrestling, but it's the Shut Up and Wrestle podcast. And it uh, plays on Wednesdays. He interviews a lot of historians, and he is a historian himself. He's wrote a book on the original Sheik out of Detroit, and now he's getting ready to write a book about Gorilla Monsoon that I will oh, definitely be nice. buying because Gorilla, him and Bobby are my favorite commentators mm. from the 1980s. Absolutely. I don't know. I'm sure you haven't been keeping up too much with AEW, particularly the last few weeks. Matt and Nick Jackson have, the Young Bucks, have taken to becoming heels in the company, have started calling themselves Matthew and Nicholas. Oh, AEW, is that that that, um, that, that, uh, promotion where they sign all their stuff in crayon and... Yeah, the, the vanity promotion of Tony yeah. Khan. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I did want to bust on Tony this week because I, I feel bad for uh, him getting so much stuff lately. But it's one of the things, and this is what Brian R. Solomon has been uh, pointing out, is Tony will get up there and they'll interview him and he'll say, oh, we're just, this is the best the company's ever done, blah, 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 blah. But attendance is down across the board. You yeah, know? that's what you were saying. Well, and they so, go down to 800, 750. Yeah, in a couple of places, you know. But I mean, they, they're in the they're in the thousands, so they're in the four figures. Yeah. Brian R. Solomon was had seen this tweet from Brandon Cutler, who's one of the wrestlers. He's a friend of the Young Bucks. He's basically one of the stooges you see running around with them. When they come out, he's normally the one that's got that freeze spray. And sometimes I think he's got a bandage on his nose. But anyway, when uh, Matt and Nick Jackson gave this interview, which wasn't bad, you know, trying yeah. to set themselves up at heels, it was not a bad heel interview. They did it with Renee Young, uh, John Moxley's wife. And oh, Brandon I'm- Cutler posted on Twitter. It is my understanding that Matthew and Nicholas received a standing ovation when they returned to the locker room. You know, that the people in the back really thought they did a good job, which they did do a good job. You know, well, that's great. I'm glad for them. Prior Solomon said, 
that's because there were more people back there than were out in the stands. Oh shit! <laughs> Which is right on the money, you know. Yeah, hey, I was gonna say, you know, they, they have been struggling. Absolutely right. They, I mean, they really peaked at Wembley, and I thought there was going to be good things for that company. Yeah. Fire and Punk definitely hurt them. They're going to have a, a crowd of seven, seven to eight hundred thousand people that will watch their TV show uh-huh. every week, and they'll have uh, three to five thousand fans, maybe. I mean, if you're in a bigger city, maybe you'll get a little bit more. Or if you're in a smart city, maybe you'll get a little bit more. But you're going to draw in the low fours or the mid fours. Yeah. So if you know you're going to do that, run smaller venues. Make money. You know, cut some of the wrestlers you got that you never put on TV. He could still have a profitable company because I don't think that the TBS or TNT relationship is going to go away. Yeah. So now, did we ever find out how much? AEW made when they came to St. Louis that time? No, I, I don't know. Because, um, I mean, they're, they're getting the rights fees from the television. Yeah. But I, I did not look up and see what kind of a crowd showed up. Uh-huh. Believe it or not, Trey, uh, Uncle Dan and I were thinking about going because we thought we could do a more fair review if we had attended a live event and saw what the energy was like in that. But yeah. the problem is, he and I aren't going to go sit somewhere for five hours. If David Von Erich and Harley Race came back from the grave to wrestle one more time, and I could go see that, I would, until they told me it was going to be a five-hour event. Right. Because you'd be exhausted by the time you got to what you really wanted to see. Wrestling mm-hmm. is best in two, two-and-a-half to three-hour. Yeah. You know, that, that's that's about the attention span and energy and everything else. That's yeah. why you look After at the about three hours. I'm, I'm losing interest. I'm looking for the, you know, I'm looking for the popcorn lady. So, yeah. And that's why the crowds are dead, but you know, that's yeah. a good, that's a good point. We ought to look up and see what they did. They were yeah. smarter when they came to St. Louis because they went and played the, it was Shafitz they went to, didn't they? It was either Stifle or Shafitz, one of the two. Yeah. And so, um, you know, where they, uh, Chaffetz is where they play slew basketball. Yeah. It's not tiny, but it's, I would say it's more comparable with what Keel used to be, which yeah. is what Sam all the time. You know, run yeah. a smaller venue, make some money off of it. But I do need to look up and see what the crowd was for that. So that's, that's something maybe we'll bring up in the next podcast. Okay. Anyway, going back to Brian R. Solomon this week, he was interviewing Steve Johnson, who is a wrestling historian. Uh, he's involved with Slam Wrestling uh, website, and he's written a book on Jim Londis that'll hopefully come out in the next year or two. I'll definitely be reading that one as well. Yeah. But I, I really enjoyed listening to the interview with him, and he said something I agree with 100%, and that is you cannot always trust trust is it you cannot always take as 100 percent accurate the stories the wrestlers will tell you uh-huh. you've got to verify it because a lot of times they're working or they're playing ribs or they're doing stuff and they yeah. constantly blend between fa- fact and fiction so uh, yeah. Yeah. in their real life they sometimes will go back and forth between fact and fiction 
I believe that 100%. You cannot just take something somebody said as 100% gospel. You need uh-huh. to do a little bit of fact-checking to see, because sometimes it's an issue of memory. Sometimes it's an issue of uh, they're working or they're kind of blending fact and fiction to make a better story. Yeah. And sometimes it's just the same story that has been passed around. It wasn't true in the first place, and it's been passed around so many times it's been altered and it's difficult to, you know, see where the fact was at one point and what is now almost all fiction. And that's one of the things that I wanted to cover for this week's podcast. And it's something I discovered when I was writing Gotch versus Hackenschmidt. And it was a story when they were, and this is before Gotch was wanting to wrestle Hackenschmidt. This was when Gotch was getting ready to wrestle Tom Jenkins in their third or fourth match when he actually took the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. And so uh, a month or so before now the match happened in 1903 before he was going to wrestle Jenkins, but they started telling this story around 1903. I'm sorry, 1906 or 1907. So the actual match happens in 1903. This story starts circulating in newspapers and stuff. I'm trying to remember what match Gotch was trying to hype. It wasn't Hackenschmidt yet, but he was trying to hype some match. Yeah. And they talked about Chief Two Feathers, this amazing wrestler from Montana who almost beat Gotch. The story that Gotch and them told, which some of it was based in fact, there was this amazing wrestler named Chief Two Feathers who had never been defeated. I don't think that's completely true, but never mm-hmm. been defeated. And he wrestled Gotch in Bellingham, Washington, and almost defeated Gotch. But Gotch eventually beats him in two straight falls, which that part's true. Wow. Yeah. Chief Two Feathers was so crestfallen at losing his first match to Frank Gotch that he retired from wrestling and never wrestled again. Oh, my God. That's kind of harsh. Yeah. Well, that's the legend. So let's find out what the true story is. And if you ever ask, where do most of these stories come from from the wrestlers themselves are their managers or promoters they are the ones that are responsible for most of the false information about their careers the lewis book a lot of the stories that i knocked down were from lewis or his manager billy sandow yeah and i'm researching i'm not going to write it for a little while but i'm researching now Lewis between 1916 and 1920, because once I covered that time period, I pretty much covered his career. Yeah. The two other books are the early career, and then Double Crossing the Gold Dust Trio was his later career when he was world Uh champion and they were dominating wrestling. So this is kind of that in between period. Yeah. And I found several stories that he and Sandow put out that. I didn't see when I was researching his earlier career, which now tells me where some of those stories came from. So the Gotch was a college wrestler at the University of Kentucky, or the State University of Kentucky in Lexington, came directly from Sandow and Lewis uh, right after the 1915 International Wrestling Tournament in New York. Oh, okay. 
and now that I've made everybody forget what I just said 10 minutes ago, <laughs> the legend was that Chief Two Feathers had never been beaten. He almost beat Gotch, but Gotch did come back and beat him in two straight falls. And Chief Two Feathers was so distraught, he retired from wrestling for good. So let's hear what really happened. Yeah. So on December 23rd, 1903, just two days before Christmas, Frank Gotch went to Bellingham to wrestle Chief Two Feathers. Chief Two Feathers was huge, and he was a wrestler from Montana. Uh-huh. And unlike uh, Chief Jay Strongbow, who was really uh, Joe Scarpa, an Italian-American, uh, Chief Two Feathers really was a Native American wrestler from Montana. His real name probably was not Chief Two Feathers, but oh, yeah. we've got to have some working the public. It is professional, mm-hmm. wrestling, remember. Frank Gotch uh, has said he was not impressed with Chief Two Feathers' reputation, but that Chief Two Feathers was one of the few wrestlers that ever gave him a tough time. And he gave him the first, the most uncomfortable first 15 minutes of a match, which is kind of borne out here a little bit. Oh, wow. Chief Two Feathers came into the ring in the traditional Indian um, garb of the time. When I say traditional, mm-hmm. I mean stereotypical, not necessarily a dress, legitimate. Probably yeah. All the bells beads. and whistles. Yeah, beads. Yeah. Stereotypical, but not necessarily traditional. Mm hmm. The bell starts the match, and Two Feathers shocks everybody by picking Gotch up and dumping him to the match, to the mat. And Gotch can't get up. And Gotch can't get up for like 15 minutes because this guy is very big and very strong. And Gotch is not really in danger of being pinned, but uh-huh. he doesn't want to be on the ground with this guy because eventually he could get rolled over for a pin. Uh-huh. And Gotch kept trying to get to his stomach so he could get to his feet, but Two Feathers wouldn't let him. So basically, he he had sort of side control, only he wasn't pushing Gotch's back to the mat. Gotch had got onto his. So imagine Gotch laying on his right side. He's laying on his right hip and shoulder with mm-hmm. an underhook underneath Two Feathers' arm, pushing with his feet to try to get back to some kind of position where he can stand up. But Two Feathers is perpendicular to him, keeping him basically stuck there. Two Feathers doesn't have enough technique to be able to spin Gotch to his back. So they're basically just stalemated in this position for like 15 minutes. Eventually, Gotch does get to his stomach and stand back up. You could tell that Chief Two Feathers was a bit winded from all of this. But it still took Gotch another 30 minutes to finally get him to the ground. And then Gotch used a hammerlock to uh, turn Chief Two Feathers for the first fall at 46 minutes. Gotch, a lot of times, if he got a hammerlock on you, because he was mean enough to crank it and uh, rotor cuffs, a lot of times the wrestler would just kind of roll out of it onto their back and take the pin rather than have their shoulder tore up. And then they had the, the typical intermission. Uh, Chief Two Feathers does get some offense in in the second fall. He slams Gotch a few times, but Gotch pretty much is in control in the second fall. Yeah. He eventually will get another hammerlock and scissors hold and pins Two Feathers for the second fall. 
this time he didn't try to crank the hammer lock. He just basically held it behind his back and put the scissors hold on him and kind of turned him back to his shoulders. Got it. Yeah. I apologize to any listeners who are sensitive to the sort of racism that was common back at the beginning of the 20th century. There's no name calling here, but this is obviously very insulting. Chief Two Feathers was quoted as saying in the newspaper, gotch, he heap big wrestler, me no match. I'm sure that's what he said. Yeah. Um, Of course, we know gotch said that Chief Two Feathers was so despondent he retired. Except that Chief Two Feathers wrestled Gotch again in 1904 and 1905. And by that point in time, Chief Two Feathers was a member of kind of Farmer Burns touring group that Uh Gotch was, you know, the big big guy for. So he may or may not have been working those subsequent matches with Chief Two Feathers. This match that I just described you did appear to be a legitimate contest gotch wrestled many more legitimate contests early in his career the later you get in gotch's career the more he's working yes so what did you think about the legend of chief two feathers just gray sounds like he was in pain I mean, really, it is because like it's just it's really cringy these days. Like seeing that like horribly racist, broken English uh, to say that like he wasn't uh, he wasn't good enough to deal with Gotch, even though he pinned him for like the first minute and a half or whatever, or functionally pinned him. And I mean, then, he held uh, him down for fifteen minutes. Yeah, and then he was he was despondent. Because he was despondent and gave up. Like, that's that's what the papers were saying? Did I hear yes, that? that's what the newspaper article said. Right. So this I was able to go back and disprove it. I'm looking at Gotch's record. They wrote that story in 1906 and 1907. Now, also understand that sometimes these articles came directly from his manager, written under a number, a different name and placed in newspapers by friendly editors, and then they get picked up by other uh, newspapers. Or they they were friends with a number of journalists. The sporting editor for uh, the Chicago American was one of Gotch's biggest uh, supporters. They could have got the story put, placed in the newspaper through him, too. Yeah. But, yeah, it was that was published in 1906 or 1907. The match actually occurred in 1903. And then just going back and doing some research, I saw that he wrestled Chief Two Feathers again in 1904 and 1905. He sounded awfully despondent to me, huh? Yeah. So despondent that he joined Farmer Burns Touring Group and wrestled around the United States. And, Dre, you bring up a good point, and that was actually kind of mild in comparison I'm sure that a lot of this stuff with his promotion, like Chief Two Feathers, like if he's okay with that, that's fine. But I'm sure there was a lot of like racist crap. It's like that one guy they had come out with a spear in modern WWE. Oh, yeah, that was horrific. I don't know how that wasn't called out. When you go back and you look at the newspapers of this day, when you're doing any kind of research of any kind of history, you will find some of the most offensive cartoons. Oh, yeah. Most offensive things of referring to people. 
I mean, it's pretty, pretty brutal. When you go back and look at this stuff, I mean, I just finished the book on Sorokichi Matsuda, and I left out most of it, but there was lots of pidgin English stuff attributed to him, and he spoke perfect English. There were a yeah, couple yeah. of paper articles where they quoted him directly, and his English was great. But if you looked at some of the early articles written about him, the, the the way they characterized his speech and everything else, it was a caricature. It was yeah. a racist character of what they thought a Japanese person would sound like. Right. So you, you're going to, when you're a historian looking into this stuff, you're going to see that all the time. You know, it's yeah. sad. I know it's it's weird to think about because you always think about it being a couple of generations further behind than it actually was. Apparently, no, that was like all of two or three generations ago. Yeah, I mean, had casual racism in the news like that. Yeah, I mean, I'd say you saw it even to the eighties and nineties. It's it's not been rooted out like it should have been until just you know recently. Yeah. That was the legend of Chief Two Feathers. And if you know, want to know where the fiction comes from, it usually comes from the wrestlers and the managers themselves. And the yeah. promoters at the time, too. Yep. And during this time, the promoters and managers were pretty much the same person. Okay. Around the mid-teens, you start having the promotional system developed. The earliest ones were Jack Curley in New York and Paul Bowser in Boston. Um, there were some other guys in the South, but they didn't stay in one place for too long. And then in St. Louis, you had John Contos established the first promotion in 1922, but he turned it over to his nephew, Tom Pax, in 1924 because he wanted to go manage Dan Kolov across the United States. Really, when you're looking at St. Louis promoters, it's really Tom Pax and Sam Muchnick who worked for PAX, would eventually compete against him and then uh, buy the promotion. Right. I tell you what, still, though, I, I think the best wrestling promotion that St. Louis ever had was Sam Mudnick. Oh, yeah. Yep. Are done. And um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was that podcast with uh, Brian Solomon and Steve Johnson that they were talking about the NWA was, you know, everybody talks about how it was such a cooperative and everything, but it really wasn't. But Sam was able to hold it together, and he really didn't want it, but he knew that if he left, it would start to fall apart. And they said no sooner did he step down as president in 1975, and it started showing cracks that early. Yeah. It, you know, once Sam wasn't there to keep the NWA together. It didn't stay together either. Yeah. And it took the guys that took over St. Louis wrestling promotion from Sam eh, six to nine months to completely destroy what Sam had built. Yeah. For 40-something years. Well, at least at least Manistic tried to do it right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think if he would have had access to a smaller building, which goes back to what we were talking about, Tony Khan needing to run a smaller yeah. building. I think if he'd had access to a smaller building, he could have made a go of it. But he was stuck just running the checker dome. And, yeah. you know, that's a 19,000-seat building. Even cutting half of it off and everything, 
he's yeah. renting the same large building. They're not mm-hmm. giving him a discount for, well, you're only going to fill half of it, Larry, so we'll rent you 9,000 seats. They weren't doing that. No. Uh-uh. Yeah. So we can get into our review here in a couple minutes. Trey, you're not much of a wrestling fan. What did you think of that match? Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. I, I had a hard time keeping up. Was there like five participants in there? Because I saw the... I remember specifically the thing that stands out was the dude with the white shirt with the cowboy boots smacked the other guy on the head. Because um, I'm sitting there and it's grainy. And I see him smacking with something I'm like, is he just smacking with a sandal or something like? Yeah. But, uh, so I guess we should have introduced the match that we reviewed. Yeah. So it was Bruiser Brody versus Crusher Blackwell from 1986. I'll put a link up in the show notes for the listeners. So the show notes are always available at KenzermanJr.com slash episode. And this is episode 47. So it'll be. KenzermanJr.com slash episode 47. It's a match from 1986 between Crusher Jerry Blackwell and Bruiser Brody, but Bruiser Brody and Sheik Adnan Al-Casey, who was his manager, jumped Blackwell almost from the beginning of the match. Eventually, Greg Gagne, who's doing commentary, joins the match as well because Brody had broken his leg in storyline. That could be best. I tell you what. And so, and that's, Greg Gagne was the one hitting him with the shit, with the boot. Okay. Yeah, well, I, I have never liked either one of the Gagne's for, you know, I, I have liked either one. Yeah, I love Brody. Um, yeah. And I like Jerry Blackwell now. When I was yeah. a kid, I never appreciated him. But now you see how, uh, but agile he was and what a worker he was at that size. And it's like, oh, I've got begrudging respect for him now. And I, I picked those I picked that match tray because those guys were huge in St. Louis. Okay. Brody was a main event star. Blackwell, if he wasn't main event, he was right underneath there, top of the mid card. And they were they were both uh in St. Louis for quite a bit of the time I was watching St. Louis wrestling. Mm-hmm. Me too. Now, right. Greg Gagne and Adnan Casey, they were not. Adnan Casey did not start coming to St. Louis until the very end of the St. Louis promotion when AWA was sending people to Bob Geigel because they were in the war with Vince. And I can't well, remember if Greg Gagne came with that. They would have sent Dan Zimmerman home. Do what? I said if they would have sent Greg Gagne to the wrestling matches, they would have sent me home. Yeah, yeah. Gagne was Vern Gagne's son, who was the promoter of the AWA. Once you knew that, you were like, oh, that's why he's there. He wasn't a terrible wrestler, but he shouldn't have been. Well, I can't say that he shouldn't have been where he was in a tag team, because I thought him and Brunzel were a good tag team. But he should have never been any kind of serious singles challenger in the right. UA. The only reason he was considered that is because he was the promoter's son who had been the world champion I don't know how many times. And right. had been on top in his promotion for way too long as well. He was in yeah, his 50s when he won his last title. Yeah. 
<laughs> Do what? So how many times did Luthes beat Gaga's ass? Yep, and that's one of the reasons they split off for the AWA is that I don't know that they ever asked Lou to drop the belt to uh, Vern Gagne, but I don't think Lou was willing to drop the belt to uh, Vern Gagne. Ah, I gotcha. But I don't think he was asked because I think the NWA promoters had Mm -hmm. concerns about Vern Gagne as a draw. He did well in Chicago, and he was a star in the Midwest, but I think they were worried about him being the traveling NWA world champion and being a little too bland. Ah, course if you if you want bland they sure got it because the guy that luthes was willing to lose to was dick hutton who was a legitimate ncaa national wrestling champion but was pretty bland and a lot of times you'll hear oh that champion didn't draw that's why they took the title off of him a lot of times when i've looked into that that has not been the case oh wow but that was definitely the case with dick hutton wow Though and a lot of people will forget or not even know the name Dick Hutton. Yep. Yeah, he was the world champion from '57, I think, to '59 when Pat O'Connor won it from mm-hmm. Hutton. And I mean, there were promoters that left over that. But the oh, funny yeah, thing sure. is, Hutton had another ten years that he wrestled. Yeah. But he mainly was just a upper mid card guy in Los Angeles. Yeah. Will Strongbow used him. When he was world champion, I looked at a couple matches where he defended in Oklahoma, and he was from Oklahoma. And he was oh, an NCAA okay. wrestling champion from Oklahoma. He couldn't draw crowds in Oklahoma. Yeah. So they, he was just a pretty bland, blase champion. Uh, did you see through that, Trey? Vaguely, yes. <laughs> I, I didn't figure that you couldn't see that. Oh, well, this isn't because. Um, I mean, Brody looks like he's landing on the guys, but you, when oh, yeah. people are hitting people the way you would never hit somebody. Yeah, like the, the leg drop. Like I saw one of them do the jump onto the guy where he hits. He basically hits his. Face of his thigh, but it's supposed to give off the illusion they basically uh, ground pound him like a Mario, uh, like Mario. Um, yeah. I thought, like, because the video kind of buffered for half a second there, I thought it was going to go into a to be continued meme. Like, he just freeze frames midair, uh, screen goes sepia tone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of techniques in wrestling that it's like, why would you ever use that other than for showman stuff? Right. And I, I think that's part of the reason why it's harder for me to keep up is I'm so used to the uh, UFC tactical or at least the self-defense tactical of you do this to take control of the situation. Right. Uh, you don't want to like, like those flying moves are terrible. Like just if if I were looking at this logically, it's like if you're going to keep hitting somebody while they're down, just stomp them. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like, <laughs> right? Uh, Why are you I don't, know, I don't know if I would trust my hips to hold out after like <laughs> jumping Cause through the up. air and landing oh, on something. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. No, that's all I had to say. Was just I don't yeah. think I would trust my hips to like not go out of alignment landing on somebody's face. Like, good. 
All right, and we're back. We have traveled forward in time. And so we're going to do the close of the show. Trey, you got anything you want to tell the listeners before you get off here? Uh, nothing on topic or anything. Nothing really even off topic, but basically no. All right. <laughs> that's that's why we have him on, folks. He, he's the best color man in business. the business for no, no reason, so. Yeah. <laughs> anything you want to close out this week with, Dan? Um, no, just you know, uh, I'm going to get uh, you off the injured reserve here soon. Better from my uh, illness here, and it's going to take probably take a couple more three weeks before I'm completely up on my feet. But uh, you know, I'm heading that way, so that's what's important. Yeah, he's going to be on the injured reserve for just a couple more weeks, and then he's going to kick out and. We'll be back in the Million Dollar Studio, and until that time, we're going to do what we have to do to make sure we get a podcast out each week and preview the the next episode. Guys, I think I'm on network delay today. My brain is like 30 seconds behind my mouth or something. On the next episode, we will hopefully have the entire band together. I don't know why I'm saying hopefully, but we'll hopefully have the entire band together because Dan and I have wanted to get Trey and Caleb's perspective on the Vince McMahon scandal. There is a generational uh, gap between me and Dan and Trey and Caleb. So we kind of wanted to hear their views and what their thoughts were on this whole scandal. Yeah. And the history topic that I'm going to talk about is most likely going to have something to do with one of the American heavyweight wrestling champions. We've not not talked a whole lot about Dan McLeod or Tom Jenkins. So that's the way I'm leaning is to talk about one of them. Okay. And maybe I'll do one for one podcast and one for another podcast, but Jenkins in particular needs to be someone people know of and, remembered as well as Gotch and Zabisco and Ed Strangler Lewis. Dan McLeod is important in his own way too. That's what we'll, we'll uh, do his history. Yeah. So that's what we'll have for the next podcast. I'll have to get with my technical consultant here to see what we can get something scheduled. Okay. I that think my te- do what? I said so you're playing a music pack. You two both keep talking over each other. <laughs> Go ahead, Dan. I just said that sounds good to me. Yeah, I was asking if I was your tech person or whatever you had to check with. Boy, he is quick on the draw today, isn't he? <laughs> I have a head cold, sue me. Yeah, my uh, technical Skype specialist is feverishly working to get that on the schedule as we speak now. I think that's it for everybody. Um, Hope you're having a great 2024 so far. And uh, maybe next week my brain will have caught up with my mouth. We can only hope so. Until next week, everybody. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Later.